mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. Welcome, Ashley Cisneros, to Peruvians of USA. I am excited about our conversation and to learn about your story, not only your Peruvian story, but also to learn a little bit more about your career, where life is taking you, and some words of wisdom that you can share with the community here. So, Ashley, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Yes. Hi, my name is Ashley Sono Peruviana, or Soy Peruviana. Um, I am currently living in Italy, so if I throw in some Italian words there, I'm so sorry. Um, my family is all from Lima, uh, my mom and my father's side, and then uh, all the way up into my great-grandparents, um, uh, Paisanitas with beautiful braids. So uh, Peru is very near and dear to my heart, not just culturally, but because I had a, a journey of discovering it for myself. Because um, a lot of the beginning of my years, which we'll talk about later, was very spent, divided and not understanding like what it was to be Latina, what it was to be Peruvian and what that meant for me. So I've really grown to truly love it. I got to spend a month there, best month of my life. I hiked Machu Picchu by foot, almost died, loved it. Um, I actually got to do not just the like Lima or Cusco, I got to do Paracas, Huacachina, Puno. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I've, I got to all all over. We did, I did a bus tour that just hops on, hops off all through Peru and it was honestly one of the uh, greatest experiences of my life that changed my perspective, really made a, put a, a image to when my mom said, be grateful, like that we live here in America and you're not eating potatoes every day. So uh, I just, yeah, my name is Ashley and, and I'm Peruvian. And I'm awesome. um, I, I think your mom would be disappointed. I'm eating potatoes every day. <laughs> I just always, I always growing up whenever I wouldn't eat my food. Tú debes estar agradecida. Tus primos en Perú solo están comiendo papas. ¿Tú qué estás comiendo? ¿Tienes de todo aquí? Oh, my God, Mom. I just don't want my green beans. I'm not trying to say it. I'm not hungry. That's so, so funny. Little funny battle we used to have growing. Yeah, that's so funny that she's using the potatoes. Like, uh, potatoes are kind of good. Papas fritas. I don't eat papas fritas. I need it. You can give me yeah. breakfast. I know. Mad I, potato this much. Everything. And I always love throwing that fun fact uh, to anyone who eats potatoes or like potatoes. I'm like, did you know that the Incans are the ones who actually cross-pollinated and made 3,000 different species? You have potatoes because of us, because yeah. of my ancestors. You also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about your Peruvian heritage. So how did your family end up in the U.S.? Like, how, mm -hmm. did you, were you born in the U.S. or were you born in Peru? Yes. Yeah, so my... Birth mom, um, so it started with my grandmother okay. and she uh, was the, the matriarch with her and her sisters. They started the immigration process coming here porque mi tía, uh, she's special needs. And in Peru, they don't really, at that time, I don't know what it's like today. Uh, they didn't have, really have the care that she needed right. to have her in school and actually like give her that special attention. Mm -hmm. um, so my, uh, my, I'm just gonna say mom, uh, because she's uh she raised me so i don't say abuelita so my mom came with my two tias uh as babies around the 50s to 60s and 70s mm. 70s or 80s at 70s or 80s and uh that started the whole like trickle of the whole family and then slowly my my tío my other tia because my mom had five kids um and then me so six and then my mom finally came but she came with my brother and sister who were born in peru and then I was the happy accident because I was born 11 years after my uh, siblings. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm first generation. So and that was very uh, an interesting process yeah. being here. Um, and so, yeah, they all came from Lima and they all settled here in New Orleans, a little bit in New Orleans and then a little bit in Sacramento, uh, San Francisco area. So we're a little spread out, but not too far out. So we, we stayed in little gaggles for the most part. Yeah. So how come New Orleans? Because um, I know like Peru is said to congregate like New Jersey, Miami, California, some areas. New I never I don't think I've met a Peruvian in the New Orleans area. Yet, so 
So there's actually quite a bit of people, only because every Peruvian Independence Day, we they always go to the one Peruvian restaurant in, uh, oh, there's, well, there's okay. like two or three now, but okay. there was only one growing up and it, we would go all there and there'd be the flag, everybody would bring the food and it was just the, the big party. So I would say about a population from what I know, yeah, about like a hundred strong that are com- com- community tied, like actually know each other and care for each other type. Um, so my mom's story was that she was on a beach with her two kids, $20 in her pocket. She's like, I don't know where to go from here. And somehow she said the bus was a like Greyhound to New Orleans kind of story vibe. At least that's how I remember it. Yeah. And so she ended up here and she was, you know, doing the cleaning houses part, even though she was an educational teacher. Um, she had her like masters and my, and my mom was on the like Peruvian Pan American team. She's a gymnastics coach and she had done okay. all this stuff, but coming here, she had to really shift focus and be like, all right, I need to provide for my kids. So it was cleaning houses and doing odd end jobs until um, she met my Papa John, who uh, ended up taking her and being her like Prince Charming and taking care of her and her two kids. Um, and so that's, he was just here and that's how they, they stayed here. And my uncle and my aunts and everybody, even my birth mom, uh, all stayed in New Orleans up until about two years ago maybe my uncle just left but pretty much the the community wow i did not know and now i have to check out i haven't been to new orleans in over 10 years so i have to check it out and check out the peruvian restaurant there (laughs) (laughs) i think when i went i didn't even know there was a peruvian restaurant so yeah las carnitas and the owner is actually friends with my uncle so every time we go there we're like hey we're back yeah (laughs) so tell us what was it like growing up you know here in the u.s as a Latina, also as a Peruvian American, and you know you're trying to learn so many cultures, right? You're trying to keep mm-hmm. your culture, you're trying to kind of learn this culture of this country, and then each area of the of the U.S. has its own culture as well. Did you encounter any struggles growing up? I definitely felt isolated being a Peruvian in the South. Um, the South typically has a lot of Central Americans, so they're. I, one, had not met, like, another Peruvian for the longest time. I don't think I even, other than the restaurant and then, like, the gatherings, I never met one socially. So that was always uh, a very isolating experience. And then in the South, you know, there's that mostly, um, I'm trying to word this correctly, too, um, the culture of, like, Mardi Gras, uh, very uh, African-centered culture. And it was really interesting to be experienced that on the outside and then coming home and being in this Peruvian house. And then my mom, uh, she really fought for my education. So she got me to get as many like scholarships as I could to go to private school. So in the South, the schools are, are really underfunded and teachers underappreciated. So the education there is very sorely lacking. Um, so the few times I did get to go to private school, it was very much um, like all white. So navigating that, so like talking to different kinds of people. Um, I definitely found myself at an interesting point where it's like I was, and I think a lot of people have expressed this before, you know, where I was too Latina for the white girls, but then I was too white for the Latinas because my mom raised me. I didn't know curse words. So when I went to school, they'd be like, oh, do you know how to say this? Do you know how to say that? I'm like, I have no idea. I just know how to say like, can I get an apple? Like just basic stuff and it was really interesting that people were teaching me bad words so I was like oh okay now I know this and I didn't speak any slang so that was also really weird for me to hear like when they would go like oh que pedo and I was like did you just say what's fart like what it's like no no que pedo what's up what's up I was like that does not mean what's up yeah we don't we don't use that (laughs) my mom was super strict in the house with grammar no matter what I was talking I could always hear her in the background correct me La, it's el baño, el baño. I guess I said la baño a lot when I was growing up. So she was an ESL teacher. Uh, once she transitioned with my Papa John, she started doing um, substitute teaching and ESL stuff. So she got even stricter with the grammar growing up. So there was no leeway for me and no slang in the house whatsoever. Yeah, I can definitely relate. It's funny because I grew up watching Univision a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so Univision is a channel from with a lot of Mexican influence. It's a channel from Mex- Televisa. So it's a Mexican channel. Sabado Gigante. Yeah, yeah and Sabado Gigante is there too. 
but a lot of the novelas were from uh, Televisa, right? And so my accent in Spanish for the longest time, and I think sometimes still now, it has a Mexican tone to it. And so I was at a party when I was younger uh, in, um, among other Peruvians, and we had been talking for, I don't know, like a good 20 minutes. And then one turns around and is like, oh, where are you from? I was do you mean I was like what do you mean accent and they're like yeah I can't tell where your accent's from and I was like I'm from Peruvian and they're like oh we thought you were Mexican I was like wow even my own people can't recognize me because my accent's just off right I'm curious about the now Latina enough is was it like the lack of language or if it was one that I didn't speak like them because they spoke with more slang and then also that I wasn't um so I think I, something I didn't really touch on is like growing up with my mom since she was in her 60s when she took me in. I not only grew up in two, three different worlds navigating not like just American, but Southern Peruvian culture. I also grew up in two completely ge- generations. Um, growing up was very much Gloria Estefan, um, Roberto Carlos old music I remember the first time I heard like a dirty song it was I say dirty but it was it was hit is Britney Spears hit me baby one more time and my mom was like she didn't like it she didn't like it. she didn't want me listening to it so for me it was uh I was very much like an old soul so now that was already kind of forming my personality that I wasn't very much um that's a very different <laughs> the nice way to put it so when I would try to talk to the Latinos I didn't have anything to really relate to you know um the only I saw Gigante was my mom's favorite growing up Laura she would watch that all the time um and the only one novella I knew was Ruby but you know kids at that age we didn't talk about novellas and stuff like that so I we just didn't have anything to connect to um which always just caused that disconnect so I had a really hard time making other friends that were Latina girls and then when it came to the white girls at like my private schools, I, I did make some friends. It wasn't just like me by myself, but um, the disconnect there came also just from wealth uh, and poverty. So because I was on scholarship, I was poorer than the rest of the girls there. And it was very obvious in the way we dressed, presented ourselves. And then also culturally, my mom was raising me in that older generation. So no makeup. I wasn't allowed to do my hair. I had to always have my skirt longer than everybody else. It was a very weird uh, dichotomy, trichotomy that I was trying to navigate. Uh, So that's why I would say like I was a little too Latina and old school Latina. I wouldn't even say like newer school for the the white girls. And then I was too white for the Latinas. So I was trying to figure out that. Yeah. And I think um, I didn't even think about like how the generation, you know, aspect would impact you and being able to connect to folks. And just so for the members, um, for the audience who might have gotten confused as to what you meant by like your mom took you in at six when she was sixty, I think you mm-hmm. said it, it's so that's your abuelita, like so your grandmother, she raised you, so you call her your mom. So I just wanted to clarify that for the audience. But um and you also mentioned that you experienced bullying for being too Latina. Can you share a so- little bit of that? I had a hurricane Katrina happened. Um, and so we had to evacuate and we moved to Houston, but to the, and I say this nicely, the whitest part of Houston, we moved to NASA Bay where it's primarily like all the scientists and like people who work at NASA. So it was a very wealthy community. Um, and we just somehow, my mom, she has this ability to, uh, find her way into these places to where I ended up going to one of the private schools and the area. Small class, like 12, 13 kids, uh, all white except for me, an Indian, and an Asian girl. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever been called dirty because I was tan. I never realized, I was like, what do you mean? I'm not dirty. Like, I'm, I'm clean. They're like, oh, no, look at the color of your skin. And I was like, trying to understand like what was going on because I'd never had dealt with that before um because being in New Orleans the younger part of my years I was in a I was in public school so I was a very like diverse group of kids um and then it started like turning into like when are you gonna come clean my lawn or clean my house or when are you gonna come like work in my yard and I'm like what are you what are you saying and I think it got even harder 
further into it when they kept calling me Mexican. And I'm like, I'm Peruvian. I'm Peruvian. And I kept having to shout that and like scream that at these kids. Um, And it really took a toll on me because I... I didn't know why these kids hated me for just me being me. Um, and then now that I'm older, I look back on it and I'm like, it's not even their fault. That's something that was learned in the house. That's something they've heard. That's something they they were repeating. Um, and as much as bad as I got it, because I got excluded from things. And now and then there was like these nice moments because I remember, you know, Everyone, every kid had their birthday party. I guess the school has some kind of policy where everybody gets invited because it's only a class of 13. Um, so there's some good moments thrown in there, but the Indian kid got it so much worse than I did. I remember how they used to just bully him so bad. And then when they would leave him out, I remember one day I even went up to him. And I was like, why do you put up with it? Like, why do you let them treat us like this? He's like, if you just don't fight back, they, they stop eventually and they let you play. And I was like, this kid's already like, accepted that this is okay and that this is how it's going to happen but I was not I definitely kept fighting and I was just like no I'm not going to take this um but then it did it did eventually follow me uh, a couple years later I did not get into the sun that much because I didn't want to tan I didn't want to talk Spanish because I was embarrassed I didn't want other people to call me Mexican or, or or make fun of me again um and it's really funny. You see this picture of me in high school and I'm as pale as I could get. But then at a boot camp, just two months after I had graduated, I'm as tan as I can possibly be. Just seeing that difference just really like made me go, wow, like I, I really for a long time, I didn't let myself enjoy being out in the sun. Yeah, I think that's very common um, in many, in many stories where even um, actually even our elders are you know, parents, grandparents tell us, like, don't stay in the sun too long. Like, mm -hmm. put your sunblock on. You don't want to get too dark. You know, like, we're, we're being told. And we, I understand that that's a way of them to protect us because they, they think, like, the lighter we are, the more protected we're going to be in society. And mm -hmm. in some ways, it's true, sadly. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's really unfortunate. How old were you when this was happening? I was 9 or 10. No, 9 going into 10 because it was my um, fifth grade year. Yeah, and my mom was just like, just, just ignore it. Just don't listen to it. Just don't. very like brush it off. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, it's so easy for you to say because you're not dragged into the office. Why are you fighting with this kid? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to stand up for myself. Um, so yeah, my mom definitely was just like, just don't do it. And then shoot, and then the colorism thing. And I don't know if it's, uh, I know it's like prevalent in the Latino community, but I definitely heard it a lot growing up. Like, you know, don't be in the sun anyways because you don't want to get black. You don't want to get dark. You don't want to. Uh, my uncle who worked outside uh, pretty much uh, most of his life was Negrito. They always called him Negrito and he was darker. Uh, it was just interesting seeing that kind of that kind of talk and, and the way they, um, not excuse it, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to get at. It's justify just, uh, it. The way they justify, justify it. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way they justify it. Um, and they, yeah, and they justify it by saying, oh, it's a cariño. You know, mm -hmm. they, they like that just trying to care for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned Katrina. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about that. I visited a year after Katrina, so I got to see some, some of the devastation that happened there. Cars, pools that have literally come out of the ground and just were outside. Houses that have been flooded to the ceiling. You were like 10 years old, you said? So you must remember, mm -hmm. like, chaos that was happening it was a very again like mixed bag for me so as much as I uh, had that bullying part of my like social life home life was the best that it had ever been because because Katrina our house had flooded six inches so we got a FEMA grant to have an apartment in uh, Houston for the year while our house is getting repaired and things like that so it was the first time I had my own bedroom we had a three-bedroom apartment, which is so nice. Everyone had their own space. It was, we had, we're on food stamps. So it was a very like steady, good food coming in. I could even get a cookbook at the library and my mom would be like, okay, yeah, we could get some of the ingredients on here and you can make something. So it was, it was a time where it wasn't so apparent that we were struggling or that we were poor, at least visually. I know my mom's talked about later on, like all the struggles she was going through with insurance and things like that. But as a kid, you know, that private school that I was going to was amazing. 
extracurricularly, I, the vacate, not vacations, the um, field trips that they go on is like three day camping trip in the mountains, horseback riding and identifying what tree this is. And then another one was like beach day in a limo because we're graduating. And I'm like, what? what is this life that I'm living, you know? So as hard as it was a little socially, it's still like in my brain, a good time because I got to do so many things. Um, But I, re- I remember just seeing my mom sometimes like on the couch, like not knowing if we'd get back home or if we'd get the FEMA extended to keep the apartment, like what was going to happen. Um, It eventually did all work out. We ended up, as soon as the apartment lease was over, we were able to be back to our home in New Orleans and go on from there but it was a very hard time and I remember coming home there was still National Guard people uh, Army Air Force all out there still doing a lot of the electrical work cleaning up and the community didn't really heal for a long time and it it, uh, it showed and it still still hasn't fully healed it's like in certain parts there's parts that still boarded up from Katrina um, and mismanagement bad decisions along the way have uh, New Orleans still has quite a long way to go yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I can only imagine your your mom dealing with insurance. That's never, it's never mm-hmm. pleasant. But um, I guess in a way, I'm glad that the um, the grant or the whatever you call it, the statement from from FEMA, you know, was helpful and that allowed you to have a a better sort of like a sort of like an improved mm-hmm. lifestyle. But it also makes me think like, what does that say about like how much we're paying our workers, right? That something had to happen so big and then the government has to step in and that grant is more than what a regular worker and you know um, yeah. uh, earn so yeah that's just really interesting um so you also mentioned that you know you compared the two photos of like one photo you were like really pale and then the other photo you were in boot camp which means you were in the military <laughs> yes. um, and you were super tan so tell us about your experience in the military so i joined when i was 17 um I enlisted when I was just beginning uh, my senior year of high school, and then I left 10 days after I graduated. Uh, It was really a mix of like, one, I saw how much they did for the community during Gustav, Isaac, Katrina, all these hurricanes and what they got to do. And then it was a mix of, I have no idea how I'm going to afford college, go to college. Do I want to go to college? My mom says I have to go to college, but I don't have any money for college. So it was a a lot of like, where do I go next? And the military, specifically, I was in the Louisiana Air National Guard, um, which is like a reserve of the big Air Force, um, but for the state of Louisiana. So we were activated on flood missions, um, hurricanes, any kind of state natural disaster, we're there. And uh, for the first five years, it was pretty much the best thing I could have ever done. It gave me such great, training opportunities i met such amazing people friends that i'm still with friends today uh structure discipline and i got to uh even travel europe for a couple months while we were deployed out there so it's just so many opportunities that i'm just so grateful for so it's 72 to 28 percent 72 male to 28 percent female it's even lower uh, for and i'm spiking air force numbers so it's like two percent uh not two percent Sorry, 12% of that 28% is uh, Latinos, Latinos, Latinas, Latinos. And then uh, boot camp is interesting. It's like Sabado en la Mañana when your mom has that music on and you have to clean with her because you have no choice. Uh, But for eight weeks in a row, that's every day, just that nonstop, almost torture. Um, But honestly, I'd go back in a heartbeat because if I, looking back on it, it was eight weeks of working out uh exercising and folding my clothes i would do that again in a heartbeat <laughs> um it's definitely interesting too going though uh i wasn't very fit or very uh like physically uh conscious that wasn't a thing in the the house necessarily so being yelled at to run for the first time was definitely a interesting experience and um by the end of it though you feel such pride such um like a happiness that I couldn't can't describe that I I did it I wanted to fall to my knees and be like I did it like I made it through I got broken down built back up and I'm better for it um 
and it was it was very interesting. I think in my flight, I'm trying to remember Heather Dunn. I think there was only two other Latino girls. It was three of us, three of us in that flight. Um, and uh, career wise, I ended up choosing cyber transport systems, which is like networking and work, like your Wi-Fi uh, router switches and that kind of field. Um, and that's even less less percentage of women. Uh, I don't think I've in training, but for that, for specifically my career fields, I think I knew two other Latinas again. Um, and then in my just working career from deploying to TDYs, all that kind of stuff, I only worked with two other females in my career fields, one that I trained and one that I was deployed with in Kuwait. Um, so it's a, it's a very small, uh, very male dominated career yeah. field. So you mentioned the first five years were great. Mm -hmm. uh, and you were there 10 years. So what made the second five years, like the second half of that time, tougher? So I was to TDY, which is a temporary duty location to uh, Boise uh, Mountain Home. It's an Air Force base out there. Just doing some training, uh, trying to, they always try to keep us, uh, continually upgrading our skills or working with different sets of people to kind of keep us in a, in a sharp uh, state or a ready state. Um, and then on these TDYs, it's very typical that we all go out. Like it's, it's not just uh, IT people, it's the wing. So it's people who work on the jets. It's just like a whole little uh, mini deployment almost from just the people from Louisiana Air National Guard. Um, and a very typical standard thing is going out afterwards, after work, uh, between bars, foods, things like that, hanging out, building uh, friendships and things like that. Um, and then one of the nights I was like, I had way too much drink. I'm going to go home. So got in an Uber, headed back to my hotel. I made sure I had my wallet and my keys and I was like into bed. Um, unfortunately, I was woken up. Uh, I don't exactly know how long after by someone touching me. And obviously I was really freaked out because my only, my roommate, she had said, I'll see you later. And I was already in bed. So I, went, mm -hmm. so I was thinking, you know, I'm alone. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of my wingmen decided that me sleeping in the bed was a chance for him to try something. Uh, and I had to fight him off. Uh, for a bit and then finally he left the room uh, and I, it's really weird to say this in retrospect but I'm very fortunate because once everything came to light he pled guilty he didn't try to like uh, lie or do anything different when the police came they took a statement um, and it all was pretty straight cut and forward uh, the hardest part actually wasn't processing what had happened there it was kind of how it was handled afterwards the girl in my room had also claimed that he tried to do that with her but that didn't match his statement where he said it was consensual with her and then when it wouldn't when it didn't happen he tried me after um so because of that she forced almost forced me or cornered me into reporting everything before I had even processed what happened. I didn't get a chance to take control or, you know, in that moment, I knew in my brain, I was like, I just want to go kick him in the special parts. Like, that's what I want to do. That's what I need right now. But in that moment, she's like, oh no, like, I'm going to tell this person, tell this person. The next thing you know, I'm giving a statement in front of the police. And I had no idea how I got there. Um, and that was really hard for me because not only was my power just taken away like 12 hours ago, my power was taken away again by this girl who was lying because it came out later in the court documents and stuff like that. So that was a, a very hard time. And then afterward, there wasn't even what had happened. It was how my unit treated me or how my like wing as a whole. On the surface, everyone was doing what they were supposed to do. They have procedures that they follow. But I still did get those questions. Why did you drink so much? Did you flirt with him? Well, why would he think that's okay? How can I answer for another person and his actions? And, and at that time, you know, I think Me Too was just starting. 
So it was already feeling like, great, now they're looking at me like I'm one of those people or that I'm lying. And all of a sudden I wasn't, you know, Sergeant Cisneros who had been here for five, six years, who had worked amongst all these people without any problems. I was that girl. So that was a really hard transition. Do you think the reason the treatment from your flight, you think that comes from like top down? So from like the leadership and then therefore everybody kind of notices the leaders are doing that? Or is it really coming from like people around your your rank, right? Like I guess I'm always curious that because this, this things, unfortunately, these things happen not only in the military, but also in like corporate America, right? And in many different industries. Um, and I and I wonder if the reason why the survivor does not um, get a lot of support is it because there's not a lot of empathy from people at the same rank, or is it just that the leadership kind of makes it so? Now we're going to isolate this person and make him or her or day the enemy. So I guess I'm curious to what your perspective is. I definitely don't see it as a like military problem. I see it more as a human problem. Um, a lot of those questions came from older guys, uh, older men. Um, a lot of the judgment came from the older men, even some from younger women, which was really shocking to me. Um, but I think a lot of it is just like misconceptions, misunderstandings, and mistrust, especially because at that time, Me Too was really like in the center, in the media. I even remember I, a, an officer had made like an inappropriate comment of like, oh, I need to talk to you in my office, but don't worry, I'm going to keep the door open because you know, Me Too. And I'm like, what? Like, was that necessary? Um, It's just, I think just, ignorance it's just ignorance at the end of the day uh i don't think i think the uh, people would talk about like military of the olden days where commanders were hiding things they didn't want things to come out they were sweeping things under the rug i really truly believe that the air force is trying to do better and i can only speak for air force not the other branches um i think that there's still just miscommunication and mishandling of certain sides of it to where now it's not just in your chain of command or in in your purview now like all of a sudden the whole wing knows about it or the unit knows about it and though i something i guess a lot of people don't like is that military is very much like high school too like office environments all those places where you have people who like to gossip or talk the clicks form there's the good old boy system. Oh, like I've known him forever. So I'm going to take care of him because we've been doing. So there's just those like human issues of just finding your clicks, sticking to them, gossiping and all those things that contribute, I think, to the continuation of the mishandling of survivors who've been through that. Um, and it's just yeah, like a big overall thing. I wouldn't say it's like mis military necessarily. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think you bring up a good point. It's definitely not military. I think it's um, it's the way humans form groups, the way we um, have a tribal mentality, right? I think sometimes the younger women or the women our age who are not as supportive or who um, automatically would assume you had some sort of blame in the situation, which nobody does um, in this particular situation. Um, I think sometimes we like to lie to ourselves that because we're, I'm a good girl, nothing like this is going to happen to me. Like this happened mm -hmm. because she's not a good girl, right? And so I think we lied to ourselves. I've seen that where women blame the person who has been harassed um, to kind of appease their own fear that mm -hmm. this could happen to them, that they could be a potential person that this happens to, mm -hmm. right? So... And that's unfortunate. Was there any consequences for this person within the Air Force? So on that side, I think my case was actually handled really swiftly and smoothly um, because he admitted guilt and was very straightforward at the police report. He admitted guilt at the uh, civilian court hearing. Um, and then when at his uh, discharge trial and everything, you know, he apologized and... Uh, they just found that he wasn't 
a good fit to keep him in the military any longer, uh, regardless of his uh, behaviors post the the incident. Um, so yes, he was he was discharged from the the Air Force. Okay. For anyone who is sort of has this has happened to them, like what words, I guess, wisdom can you share with them in terms of either handling reporting this or mm-hmm. processing this for themselves? First and foremost, do what you need to do for yourself. Don't let anybody talk you into reporting before you're ready, saying anything before you're ready, doing anything before you're ready. Take control. And I know it's going to be really hard in that moment because you just had your power taken away. So it's really easy to get swayed or moved or or feel like you have to do something now to to compensate for that. Um, take control. Do what you need to do to move on, to heal, to process. Um, the only caveat I will say to that is, at least in the military side, tell someone that is in an unrestricted, oh no, restricted reporting chain, which is like a chaplain. So if I talk to him, he can't tell anybody that I said this. But now it's been reported. We can do a private document and nobody outside that has to know, but at least it's documented. And that's really important when it comes later on into like your veterans benefits, uh, seeking mental health for the rest of your life after that kind of stuff happens. Um, And then just on the civilian side, excuse me, as a woman, try to write everything down because you are going to go through moments where you can't even remember what your name is. At least in my personal experience and some of the things I've heard from other uh, people who went through this, write everything down and it's going to be really hard, but write everything down in that moment. Because even if you can't tell someone, if you have no one to turn to in that moment, you need to write that down and that will be very powerful and help you later. Um, and be strong. It's the hardest thing and people tell you, oh, you'll be okay. Oh, you'll be all right. You'll move on. Don't worry. You'll get over this. It's it's not as easy as those words, but just be strong for yourself and know that you will get through it, but don't have to do it on anybody's timeline. Do it on yours. Yeah, I think those are great. This is a great message, particularly the writing it down. I can imagine being continuously asked about this. And like, if your story changes slightly, that could be seen as like you are lying, which you're not. You're just exhausted of telling the story or you're just like anybody like tired of talking about it or traumatic it's a traumatic experience to keep talking about it yeah let's pivot a little bit into something happier <laughs> let's talk about why you're in italy <laughs> why hmm. did you arrive at italy how long you've been there yeah and i'm sure that members of our audience want to know like how can mm-hmm. i get myself to italy you know <laughs> well actually it's a lot easier than a lot of people think there's so many jobs we don't think about that are available to uh, american citizens um that are able to work on bil- military bases outside of uh, the u.s and we have them in guam asia tokyo uh, south korea we have them in uh, all over in italy we have lots of bases here spain which is Hopefully one day I might get to do that one next. Um, Spain, UK, Belgium. Um, So after all that kind of stuff, I was like, you know what? I need a change. I need something to move me forward and get me out of this this place kind of mentality. Um, And through uh, past that, I actually ended up meeting my husband, who's in the same job as me. We met deployed. and so we both do IT work. He does cyber. I do uh, your Wi-Fi. So I always say we make a little dream team. Um, he was actually trying to be a boxer. And we were trying to figure out what are we going to do? He's going to do boxing. And I'm just going to still work at, a, at the time I was working at Homeland Security. Um, but then I really weirdly, I'm sorry, I went all over the place. But really weirdly one day, I was just looking at this email that was my maiden name. I so I didn't even use it anymore. But for some reason, my brain was like, you should check that mailbox. And I clicked it and there was this uh, email from two days ago. So I was like, oh, well, I already know it's not going to be any good. But I was curious because I saw like Europe in the tag or something. 
And it said positions available all over Europe. Uh, please send your resume. I found you on this, whatever, um, which is always important to keep your LinkedIn updated is how they found me apparently. Um, and they just sent the possibility. So I was like, oh, well, there's no way they're still going to be available because overseas jobs, military, any kind of like stuff like that or government contracts get swooped up so quickly. I have tried applied for many, many years to Germany, to all other places. And I never even got like a smoke signal back. So when I uh, sent me and his resume, uh, my husband's resume, they uh, actually emailed me back. And they were like, when can you interview? Can you interview Monday? It was like Friday afternoon. I was like, yes, yes, I can. And they're like, okay, perfect. And I, the only positions they had uh, were like Belgium and Germany at, in the, the little tag that I had read at first. And I was like, why not? Um, my husband was a military brat, so he spent some time in Italy. Um, so when I told him Germany, he was like, nah, I wouldn't want to do that. I'm like, oh, well, let's just interview and see what happens. You never know. Because he was recovering from soldier surgery to try to go back to boxing. Um, but that Monday came, we get another phone call and they're like, oh, uh, why did you only apply to Germany? And I was like, I didn't apply. You guys emailed me. Like, oh, well, we have positions in the UK and we have it in the Netherlands and then Italy. I was like, Italy? What part of Italy? Uh, and they said Naples. And I was like, that's where pizza comes from. So that sounds like a good place. Um, and so when I told my husband, I was like, Manny, they changed it. They said we can apply for Naples, Italy. He was like, no. It's like, yes, no. So we're just like, okay, let's figure this out. Let's do this interview. Two minutes of this interview of this lady asking us, just like, hi, who are you? What have you done? It lasted no longer than two, three minutes. And she was like, okay, when can you start? Can you move like um, now? Because what happened was they shifted contracts. And so when that happens, typically they keep people. But because sometimes there's contract loyalty to whoever owned it before, uh, a lot of people left this. So it was a very weird void in this specific niche of IT help for the schools in Dodia, which is the Department of Defense Education Activity, the schools on the military bases overseas. Something I never thought was a thing. I knew there were schools on bases, just never thought there'd have to be IT support there. Um, and although my my husband had his his like goal and dream of doing that uh, his boxing thing, he was like, you know what? When are we going to get a chance to get paid tax free, living in Italy, and doing a, a pretty straightforward job? Uh, and so he and I we ended up packing a house that we had just I had just put my last decoration to where I'm like, ah, uh, this is perfect. This is how I want it. I finally did it. Had to pack it all up. Most devastating thing. Um, this was our first house and it was just all those sentimental feelings, but it was oct mid-October that happened. We were here one month later. We packed our whole house, got our passport renewed, got our visas, got our pets checked, everything. Cause I have three cats and a dog here with me. Um, and we managed to do all that in a month and we got here. And I remember getting on that airplane and just sobbing, crying, like we made it. We're on the plane. The cats are all good. The dog is alive. Let's go to Italy. <laughs> and so we have been uh, traveling like once a month, getting to know uh, new places, old places that we've been to and rediscovering things and it's been honestly such a blessing and you don't have to be in IT to get this kind of job uh, at the Department of Education. If you are a teacher and you're listening and you're like, that sounds so cool. I want to get paid to travel and have a great job. They are hiring. Dodia is hiring. So if you need any help or you want to apply, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I will gladly help any Peruvian who wants to come out here. We need more of us. We need to tackle all of Europe. That sounds like a, such an amazing opportunity. And I'm glad you, you and your husband experiencing this, like such a great opportunity to make his point, to be in Europe, to be in Europe, to travel. Yeah. I'm so excited and so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's definitely been like one of a kind. And then I, I think I've, I've mentioned this when I wrote to you, like my big thing is trying to go to a Peruvian restaurant in every mm -hmm. country that I go to. And so far, it has not disappointed. Spain was the best, but I feel like that's cheating. Um, 
second best was London. Florence had an amazing Peruvian restaurant. Wow. I had friends who had come to visit me coincidentally during uh, Peruvian independence. And I was like, do you guys mind, you know, um, if we go here, uh, not really a question, I'm forcing you. <laughs> and they loved it. So I always also love introducing people to Peruvian food because I love the look on their faces. We're like, I've never heard of this. This is really great. <laughs> Two papalawan is down. And I'm like, yeah. mm-hmm, got you hooked. <laughs> nice. Um, how has your perspective on either work-life balance or just life? has changed now that you've been in Europe for a year or so. I'm curious because, you know, it's the U- there's conversations here in the U.S. about just uh, being workaholics and just like mm-hmm. being burned out. And then many articles and blogs kind of look to Europe about this different lifestyle that they have mm-hmm. that is not, um, that allows, that prevents burnout, as you know. Mm-hmm. Has your perspective has changed? Tremendously. I, uh, there's a famous, or um, it's probably for other cultures too, but they say a lot, the Italians, they don't work to, they don't live to work. They work to live. And that's very much seen in the culture. And at first I was like, why are they not doing this? Why are they not moving? Why are they not going? And I finally was like, wait a minute, I need to calm down because like three or four uh, times has an Italian like, Senora, con calma, con calma. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'll calm down. I'll I'll slow down. Um, and it t- it took me uh, definitely like the first three four months trying to stop being so go go because like right before here I was working at the Department of Homeland Security, and that job was constant go 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 like from eight to four. I was either on the phone with the White House or the FBI, and I'm trying to get these calls like scheduled, and it was just high intensity. When I came home, I was done. I was done. I didn't want to do anything. Working here, I'm now working with teachers and in a very like, um, just a very calm educational type of environment where everything, there's no fires going on. So I'm not trying to make sure the director of the FBI gets into his call. No, I'm just making sure Miss Susie can get into her email. So it was a definite change of perspective. I was also, I exited the military. So that was no longer uh on me as well so it, it changed into a very relaxed lifestyle to where even every time I call my mom and I'm like well, Mac, just, uh, we're just talking and she's like ¿Estás en vacación otra vez? ¿Tú trabajas? ¿Qué, qué, ¿Perdiste tu trabajo? ¿Por qué estás en vacación otra vez? Because to her she was that Sunday to Sunday trying to provide non-stop working for her family and me I'm like I bought my dog a new sweater and I'm in London I love you so <laughs> She's definitely, uh, she's definitely just surprised at how relaxed my life is now. Um, and I say relaxed, not in just like a, a calm, like a work balance, but like in a, in a personal life balance. Like everything has finally come into a beautiful circle. And uh, I'm in Italian classes right now and talking to other people from around the world, some Greek, some German and Polish. And just we were having a discussion and I was like telling them about my job and what I do. And they were like, where did we go wrong? why don't we have your job? I want to do what you do. And I was like, really? Like, it sounds, I, I guess I, I, and it really made me put into perspective, like, yes, like this is what people want. And I, and I really am grateful for it. Awesome. Um, so as we wrap up, what is the one message you want um, our audience to take away from our conversation? Perseverance. And not the cliche, like never back down or never give up, but the perseverance in your heart. I, I don't want to sound too cheesy, but like perseverance in your heart. So no matter what is going on around you, no matter what is trying to affect you, bring you down, keep moving forward. Even if it's just a millimeter, a centimeter, whatever you need to keep persevering and keep moving forward because you never know where you end up because five years ago if you would ask me where I would be in life it would not be here but I think because of the great support that I had um with my mom and then my meeting my husband I've moved that centimeter at a time to where I'm here and I know that anyone can truly do that just with that mindset of just keep moving forward keep moving forward and if anybody wants to connect with you to learn more about, you know, 
finding jobs in Italy. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, any teachers or if you're like working in contracts and building maintenance, whatever you do, if you just want to shoot me a message and I can see if there's that kind of possibility for you, mm-hmm. I will gladly help you and point you in that direction. Um, so we Peruvians can take over the world. <laughs> awesome. How can they connect with you through Instagram or Sorry, LinkedIn? Through- through Instagram. And you can also message me on LinkedIn as well. Um, I would say I'm a little more active on Instagram. So uh, you can put that on the bottom or something. Uh, and yeah. can, anyone can reach out to me. Yep. I'll definitely add it to the episode notes. Um, Ashley, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us. I know that our audience learned a lot and took a lot of takeaways from this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Adios todos. Gracias por todo. <laughs> If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Just wanted to take a break here to share that Peruvians of USA now has an online store. Help us spread the message that El Mejor Amigo de Un Peruano es Otro Peruano by visiting our online store. We also have feminine versions that said La Mejor Amiga de Una Peruana es Otra Peruana or gender neutral versions. This could be the perfect gift for a Peruvian in your life. Visit the link on the episode notes or link in bio. All right, back to the episode. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.